When I was an army chaplain, my soldiers asked me all kinds of questions about God, life, relationships, the Bible, and answered them as best I could with things that are rattling around inside my head and things I picked up along the way. They also called me Padre. So welcome to the Dear Padre podcast where I take questions and answer them. And today... We are going to explore the idea behind the demonic demons and also Jesus' response to them in the healing of the Syrophoenician woman's daughter, which is found in Mark, Mark's gospel. I'm going to read part of a, a book I'm writing called Post Traumatic Jesus. I'm going to be releasing parts of this book on this podcast. And this is the chapter. A rough draft of the chapter on the Syrophoenician's daughter. A number of years ago, when I worked at St. Mark's Episcopal Church in Austin, Texas, we hired three actors to dramatically perform the Gospel of St. Mark on his feast day, which is April 26. I'd heard it takes about an hour to read the whole Gospel out loud, but with a few musical interludes and the sheer drama of the book, and of course the drama of the actors, it took around two hours. The first impression of the event was that it was awesome. I mean, it really was. It was breathtaking. This is how the Gospels were meant to be experienced as a play. In fact, if the Gospels were read as literature, if they are read as literature, and they were assigned to a genre, a genre, did I pronounce that right? The genre would be drama. The second impression I had was there are a lot of demons in Mark's Gospel. Stories with demons in them seem to happen every couple of minutes in the drama. For such a ubiquitous subject in the stories of Jesus, Christians today are not of one mind on the subject of demons. What is a demon? Is a pretty, it's a pretty basic question, really, but one you, should, you probably shouldn't discuss at work or on a first date. Even as I write this, I'm careful not to say too much for two reasons. I don't want you, the listener to think I'm unhinged. I also, actually, if you've been listening to this podcast, you you already know the answer to that. I also don't want to invite demonic attention to me or you. So I'll proceed with caution, trying not to get too unscientific and trying not to stir up curiosities that will not come to good ends. My first observation of how demons are described in Jesus' world is that there are several interchangeable terms. Demon is used in Matthew in the story of the Syrophoenician woman, whereas unclean spirit is used in Mark's gospel. These terms seem to be interchangeable. They're in the same story, two versions of the same story, and refer to the same entity, this demon that's troubling this daughter. Demons are spirits, incorporeal. They don't have bodies, uh, but some seek bodies, even the bodies of animals, as we see in the story of the legion of demons who enters a herd of swine. When the Syrophoenician woman meets Jesus, she says, my daughter is tormented by a demon. The most wooden translation of her Greek would be, my daughter is demonized. Whatever was happening to this girl, it was tormenting enough for her mother to go to great lengths to help her. Another story from the gospel says a demonized boy throwing himself in the fire to to the great panic of his parents. From this, I think it is safe to say that the hallmark of demonization 
is self-destruction. Demons cause people to be self-destructive. And demons causing people to be self-destructive is how we talk about it in secular society. Today, he had a lot of demons, or he really struggled with his demons. We say of the Vietnam veteran who drank himself to death. We drink spirits, and many used to speak of the dangers of demon rum. There is a possession that takes hold of a person when they drink alcohol. It often leads down to a path of self-destruction. In the book of Acts, the filling of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost is contrasted with being drunk, indicating that much of the behavior, drunk and demonized, is the same, or filled with the Holy Spirit is the same. So we see like there's this connection between spirits or intoxicating beverages and demons and the Holy Spirit too, sort of acting in the spirit, um, unclean spirits or in the Holy Spirit. The self-destructive behavior coupled with the loss of one's autonomy must be a hellish experience for the demonized people in the world of Jesus and in our day as well. If there is a link between demonization and trauma, it is impossible to know in every case. We must remain open to the connection and listen to how traumatized people talk about their experiences with the demonic. Carl Marlantis writes about this connection in his great book, What It Is Like to Go to War. Marlantis, a Vietnam veteran himself, felt an evil presence stalking him after his traumatic experiences in Vietnam. In a special service many, many, many years later with a priest, he felt that presence leave for good. This story, uh, the way he describes it is really powerful. That He felt this presence. It didn't really go away. He talked to this priest. They did the service. But it, all, it had to do with the trauma of Vietnam. And specifically, his trauma that he writes about is the trauma of the war, participating in the war, but also the trauma of accidentally killing one of his own Marines. He was an officer there and, um, in a firefight a bullet that he fired, more than likely he fired, went through the head of one of his Marines. And he lived with that and haunted by that, literally haunted. We use those kind of terms to talk about a bad memory of a bad experience, but we use a demonic kind of term for that. Um, so we also think of uh, Sylvia Frazier, an incest survivor, really an awful situation trauma that she went through. Um, and Judith Harmon writes about her. She says, I have more convulsions as my body acts out other scenarios, sometimes springing from nightmares, leaving my throat ulcerated and my stomach nauseated. So powerful are these contractions that sometimes I feel that I were struggling for breath against a slimy lichen clinging to my chest, invoking thoughts of the incubus who in medieval folklore raped sleeping women, who then gave birth to demons. In a more superstitious society, I might have been diagnosed as a child possessed by the devil. What in fact I had been possessed by was my father's forked instrument, the devil in man. This is in Judith Herman's book on trauma. We can see her writing and talking about how this traumatic experience conjured up more than just this is an abusive human in this situation, but there is some evil force that I am that she is 
encountering in this trauma and the aftermath of the trauma seems to be connected to this. There is a veil between the psychiatric and the demonic that is not easy to distinguish. The demonized person is vulnerable, just as the mentally ill person is vulnerable. And there are legions of people standing ready to do them harm from both good intentions and bad. This is part of the tragedy of trauma and the aftermath. So many have been harmed by exorcism, by exorcism-hungry clergy. And so many others have been harmed by psychiatrists who shocked, lobotomized, and experimented on mentally ill people. I've long been curious about the sheer volume of demon stories in the Gospels, when they're not a major feature of most other sections of the Bible. Walter Wink and others have pointed out that the demonic flourishes in oppressive community structures. In fact, the in fact, even in oppressive governments like Rome, this could also be the demonic. Paul Tillich, a traumatized World War I army chaplain and theologian, said as much about the Nazis. They were demonic. In their quest for power, they tapped into the evil powers of this world and were empowered to do evil on a grand scale. The people in Jesus' day lived under the burden of Roman occupation. Their presence in the Gospels is ubiquitous and throughout. I used that word ubiquitous twice, didn't I? Their presence is assumed on every page, even if not addressed directly. And this situation hurt people, especially the children whose behavior manifested this disease of the society. And it is this little child, a daughter of a Gentile Syrophoenician woman, who begs Jesus for deliverance from this demon. Jesus does not launch into a lecture about demons as I have done above. He refuses on the grounds that he must serve his own people first before he serves the Gentiles. Jesus famously refuses to heal her and to deliver her from this demon. And he uses and he says these words, Let the little children be fed first, for it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. That he calls this woman a dog would not be surprising in his world. But her answer is much more surprising and delightful even, in her world or in our world. This is what she says. Sir, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. She tells him he can do it. He just doesn't want to do it. This woman who has experienced the trauma of a demonized child goes head to head with Jesus and wins. She has no Fs left to give. She will leave it all on the track. She has burned all her bridges, spiked all the guns, salted all her fields. She will not go home without his agreement to heal her daughter. The hell of her present is far worse than any rejection he can give her. I see in this woman the refugees banging at the gates of the airport, the desperate citizens marching against the regime as the soldiers cock their rifles, the proud veteran who walks into the VA clinic because he has finally become suicidal enough to be scared. The desperation of the traumatized, the post-traumatic rage is real. And Jesus feels it in her words and heals the daughter. An officer in my unit many years ago told me about her homecoming after our deployment to Iraq. She'd come back two weeks before the rest of us to arrange for shipping our vehicles and equipment. She arrived at the army base late and went, on the, went to the on-base hotel. Although she had a reservation, they had lost it. She, said, she told me later, there are two kinds of mad. Mad, 
and a rack mad. I got a rack mad, she said. Well, they gave her a room. What she described, I've felt too. It's an irrational response to being trapped in a traumatic situation. It's a survival instinct that kicks in. It is sometimes a thing that saves us. And it is this post-traumatic rage that saves this Gentile woman's daughter. And Jesus says, great is your faith. Can post-traumatic faith be great? Yes, Jesus says so. And deep down, I hope you know it too. And as we think about this story and this woman who, with this great boldness, confronts Jesus and demands that he heal her, not because she is powerful, she has no power in the situation, but because he is powerful and because she deserves it. She deserves this healing and she knows it. And she knows it's a good thing for her daughter to be healed, to be delivered from this demon. And Jesus does it because he sees her argument plain as day. Um, don't give the crumb, don't give the bread of the children to the dogs, Jesus says. And she says, well, even the dogs eat the crumbs under the table. You've seen it before. You have a puppy and, you know, the, the, they're going to be under the table if there's a kid eating. They know that there's going to be crumbs that will fall. And it's all this woman is asking for is the crumbs. There's a beautiful prayer in our prayer book called the Prayer of Humble Access. And we Anglicans, we like to talk about our prayers a lot. But it is the basis and the, the ground, the skeletal structure of our spirituality, these prayers in our prayer book that are derived from Scripture. And there's one that we pray right before we take communion. It's called the Prayer of Humble Access. And the prayer goes like this. We do not presume to come to this thy table, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in thy manifold and great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under thy table, but thou art the same Lord, whose property is always to have mercy. Grant us therefore, gracious Lord, so to eat the flesh of thy dear Son, Jesus Christ, and to drink his blood, that we may evermore dwell in him and he in us. Amen. While it is called the prayer of humble access, we don't presume to come to this table, Lord. Um, we trust in you. We're not so much worthy as to gather up the crumbs. While this is called the prayer of humble access, it is the most defiant, proud, bold prayer there is on the planet. This is the prayer that this woman prays to Jesus and demands that he heal her based on her argument, the argument that he made that he won't heal her because she's a little dog and the bread is for the children. And this prayer of humble access is a prayer of bold defiance. As Christians, we believe that God has accepted us. God has loved us. God has loved us before we loved God. And so when we approach the throne of God's presence boldly, we are doing what every child deserves to do, to talk to their parent. This is not, um, this should not be seen as unusual. And so this prayer of humble access, while we're humbling ourselves and saying we're not worthy, this is the ultimate statement of our worthiness. This is what the Syrophoenician woman prayed with great boldness. And this is what we have to do sometimes. Sometimes we have to cry out with our own voice, voicing our feelings to God, voicing our anger to God, voicing our disappointment to God. This is part of prayer. And this is what this prayer encapsulates 
And I hope you can pray it today. Hope you can find a church or some other place to worship or prayer prayers out of the prayer book or off prayers off the internet or whatever you do in your own place of worship today. I hope you can pray this kind of humble prayer, which is also the boldest prayer in the world. If you have any questions about this episode or anything I discussed in here, please reach out to me, um, runnermonk at gmail.com or through the Anchor app. Look forward to hearing from you.